Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is Petra Deflar. She's a functional medicine doctor, and we're going to talk about uh, what's called deuteronomic medicine as part of functional medicine, and uh, she'll explain that. So, Petra, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. I'm very happy to be here, and um, I look forward to uh, diving into this topic of deuteronomics with you. Yeah, what, what is deuteronomics? What does that mean? So deuteronomics, the fancy description is, um, or the scientific description, I should say, is the study of deuterium discrimination, compartmentalization, and fractionation in living cells. And so what does this mean? It basically means how water moves in our bodies. That's the best way to describe it. And so the biochemistry of what deuterium is, how it can disrupt function, that's really what this is all about. So uh, deuterated water. How is it different from uh, regular water? So actually all water in pretty much in on the planet has deuterium in it. As you may know, that deuterium is a stable, stable isotope of hydrogen. And on average in the world, where everyone's drinking about a water that's 150 parts per million or ppm. And you may have heard of heavy water. So that was a product that they used to slow down nuclear reactions because deuterium is twice as heavy and twice as large as hydrogen. It alters the properties and it slows down reactions in the nuclear plants, but also in our bodies. Well, in deuterated water, is one or both hydrogens deuterated? And is there a difference? Well, so there is no such a thing really as deuterated water. There is water, is bulk water, which, for instance, are, are the water that we drink in tap water. Um, and depending on where you are on the planet, it has between 145 and 152 ppm. It, you have something called deuterium oxide or D2O, and that is just straight up deuterium and oxygen. But most water has some level of deuterium in it. So, but it wouldn't be, have been added to me. If it's deuterated, you would have added it extra, but you don't, it's just present. But if I'm picturing like sense? a water molecule, you know, yeah. it looks like a Mickey mouse. You got like the big you know, oxygen and then the two mouse ears of hydrogen. Are both yeah. of the mouse ears deuterated or is it, or just one of them in a given molecule or am I yeah, thinking so the water wrong and just it, yeah, so, you know, kind of the hydrogens are shared and, you know, so like one in, 150 out of a million of them are deuterated hydrogen. Well, this is how you can look at it. In water, out of a million hydrogens, 150 would be deuterium. So yes, and, and a water that would look like that is one Mickey Mouse with one really, you know, ear that's twice the size as the other. So that's how you can look at it. So when that that molecule actually then becomes part of any other protein in your body or any any substance that you created, it alters the function because it, it changes the binding affinities and binding strengths of the bonds. And so everything changes. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But are there any Mickey Mouse's with two big ears? You know, both of them are uh, hydrogens with extra neutrons in them, or, or is it just usually one? It's usually one, and unless they actually make it and, and to use it for purposes in medicine, they, they actually use it in some places to slow down uh, the breakdown of certain you know medications that you take. Oh, but because of the bonding and the way it works, yeah. it's unlikely. I mean, is it totally unlikely for you to get deuterium oxide as bonded to some other substance in your body? It's only going to be one of the uh, the hydrogens that has it on average. Exactly. Okay. So how did you, um, it seems a little bit unusual. How did you even get into this or start considering it? Yeah. So in 2018, early in the year, my mom was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I remembered from while being in, in school in 2014, I remember hearing about deuterium and deuterium depleted water. And I knew that I needed to dive into it, but it's such a large topic that I just didn't have time. And I kind of just put it out on the mental bookshelf and thought, okay, I'll, I'll get around back to this. And so when my mom was diagnosed, I thought, okay, I need to look at this again. And then once I started exploring this topic, I just became fascinated. And I realized that deuterium is, and getting the level right in your body, is probably one of the most foundational interventions you can uh, start with to correct any issue that someone may have. So, you know, a lot of the data that we know of that has been published is based on using it in cancer. But in I've personally found it to be extremely helpful in many other uh, presentations of disease. So can I describe some of those that I've seen this be very effective for? I just have a quick I, you know, thought. Yeah. I, I picture like... Um... I don't know, some group of people living somewhere in some country and they have extremely high or extremely low, you know, yep. deuterated water and they have different yep. health effects because of it. And that's right. Know, I don't know, just it just pops yep. in my head, but go ahead, describe. That's- yeah, there are those areas indeed. And I think some of them have been described in Romania and in Russia. And those populations, they tend to live on higher elevations and in the center of continents, which is where water will have lower levels of deuterium because of the properties of deuterium. It, the water freezes when there's deuterium in it at a lower temperature. And so that rises to the top as it's also because of the ice goes there. And then the deuterium depleted water is below it. And that's what these people consume. So yes, and these people do very well. They do not have the type of degenerative diseases, cognitive decline, cancers, and you name it. So we, we know this indeed, that there is a, a benefit to keeping levels at the levels that we had when humans evolved, which we believe is around 130 parts per million. And today, because of the lifestyles we all lead and the foods we eat and the the toxins we're exposed to and you name it, um, we are not depleting at the same uh, level that we're taking it in. And that is what's causing and contributing to this enormous amount of chronic disease that we're seeing today. Yeah, this seems like, I don't know, there's a lot of thoughts going in my head. You know, water, obviously, it's critical for life. I mean, it's, well, there's tons of things I want to ask you, but I guess first the joke. So if I if I go to a restaurant and I ask her deuterium depleted ice cubes in my drink, well they they like freak out, right? They won't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they, they won't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I know. But that's a very good idea. So is it all right, so it's better to have less deuterium in your water than than normal than 150 parts per million, right? 
Indeed, yes. You know, we look at that. So a wellness water would be maybe 125 parts per million. And then a therapeutic water, I consider that to be around 105 parts per million and then lower, you know, at 85 and 65 and so and so forth. Depending on the person's presentation, their disease process, the goals is what we would apply. But yeah, ideally we won't. Um, there's spring waters that you can find that have about 140 ppm, but below that it has to actually be depleted through the mechanism of repeated uh, distillation. So I'm sure you drink waters that are depleted versus non-depleted. Uh, do they taste different? Can you tell or is it yeah. just, you have yeah. no clue? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, you actually can taste it. Yes, it is a slightly sweeter taste, if you will. And pets can also pick it out. They will prefer the depleted water versus the bulk water. So when was this first discovered? Like what's some of the history of it? It just seems really cool. Interesting. It is fascinating. So there is research that dates back, I think, to 1930s or 40s. I'm not that familiar in detail with those pieces, but I know that in the 1980s, Gabor Shumyae in Hungary started looking into this and realizing that it is part of the cancerous process. Deuterium can be, it's an oncoisotope as how we refer to it. And, and the first data was published in the eighties and nineties. And he actually released a book in 1999 um, that was translated in English in 2001. And it's called Defeating Cancer, Deuterium Depletion. And so it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, and then the, the, the papers have really been starting to come out in the last decade with in 2015, the most um, groundbreaking paper, I guess, was published. Yeah, I have all these links on my website if you're interested in checking this out. Yeah, the reason why I know anything about this is I remember reading about uh, olfaction. And I remember there was an experiment conducted where they had like a, a T-shaped maze. And on one end of the maze, one arm of the T, they had the deuterated something. And the other arm, they had regular compound. And flies were able to tell. They figured only by smell that they could mm -hmm. smell the deuterated version of this compound. And it was either more or less attractive to them, I forget. But, you know, as you mentioned, dogs can tell. So yes. beyond taste, I don't know if people could smell the difference in water, probably not, but other animals, I guess, can. It's interesting. Yes, they can. Flies want the deuterium because it's a growth factor. So it depends on the organism. So yeast loves it too. It grows on it. So yeah, that, that's a whole other way of determining who prefers it. So has anyone discussed how this arises and what are the conditions that make, you know, deuterated water or non or, you know, depleted deuterium water? 
So it has been around since the big bang, you know, deuterium in our environment. And like I said earlier, it was believed to have been around 130 parts per million. And and as our planet has changed, um, so have the levels of deuterium. Okay. You know, sometime maybe a conversation with a physicist. I don't know if you you know if you're interested, but I'm sure they'll have some some reasoning on why it happens and how it happens and why it hits those levels and et cetera. But I know the, the more therapeutic information about it's what we're going to dive into now. But I just I was just curious. So, so all right, so you learned about this and why does uh why does deuterated water cause cancer? Like why is it anabolic? What does it do? Yeah, so it is a process that takes place. Um, so we get deuterium in us through the foods we consume, the water we drink, the air we breathe. And as we break down the foods that, that we eat, there are different mechanisms, biochemical mechanisms in our body that are there in specifically to exchange any deuterium that comes in on a glucose molecule, for instance, and uh, swap that with a hydrogen atom that d- picks up from the intracellular water. Um, so that's, for instance, when I'm talking about glycolysis. And then you have the next biochemical process, the TCA cycle, that breaks down further food products. And again, it's, it's it has several exchange reactions where water is send off and pick back up um, in in order to get hydrogens attached and not deuterium. And so if you start looking at deuteronomics, the biochemical reactions, you will find out that basically all the reactions in the body are there to protect mitochondria from getting deuterium inside the matrix. That's what this is all about. Because if deuterium does get in, it cannot get out. As it exits through the delicate ATPase or nanomotors, it would actually destroy it because it's twice the size and then twice the weight. You can think of that as, you know, a rotating door from a department store. If somebody's trying to get out, that's just way too large for the door and the whole thing just slams shut and that's it. And so that's when the, the, the mitochondria would, would break down and fail and that's how it starts. And so once that process, there's too many deuterium atoms coming in, the uh, metabolic, uh, the metabolites of the TCA cycle starts backing up. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And that causes something called metabolic crowding. And that then gives rise to all sorts of other dysfunction within the whole biochemical pictures. And so that's where it starts collecting. Um, Now, if it gets into, for instance, it can also incorporate a deuterium atom into the backbone of DNA. And this actually makes the the DNA larger, twice as big in the areas where it has a deuteron instead of hydrogen attached. And so this causes um, genomic transformation and division of, of, of the nucleus. And that's, that's what's causing cancer. That's that this is that division. That's why we call it an oncoisotope. And so th- those are some of the mechanisms. Yeah. I've interviewed a bunch of people on the metabolic, you know, theory of cancer. Um, yeah. And they, a lot of them say that the mitochondria and cancer cells are damaged. Do you think that perhaps this is what causes the damage in the mitochondria and leads to cancer cells? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's it. And this is why, and this is, and this is perfectly explains why a ketogenic type of diet is beneficial because if we would try and consume a diet that is low in deuterium, the lowest deuterium foods are fats. And so that's how we can quickly drop down our deuterium levels in our body. And that's why it's, it's, it's therapeutic. Wow, this is a whole, whole world of stuff I didn't know about. Have people looked uh, histologically at, you know, at tumors? And do you find like high levels of deuterium in tumors, for instance? Yeah, yeah. So indeed, um, not so much histologically, but we're doing it by imaging. If you, and, the, and we're currently working on to develop a standard for applying these methods and mechanisms to image tumors and, and the human body. And we can do that with MRI that's actually at a lower intensity. And we know that one deuterium atom changes the spin of a uh, hundred atoms around it. And so that's hydrogen atoms around it. And so that's why, why we can see it. So if it's a density of deuterium present in a tissue, we know that that's where cancer is. Oh, so on MRIs, uh, deuterium plays a role in the imaging and that's how you, you're able to image certain things or no? Yeah, that is how it is. Not in the current Tesla 3 and the, the weighted types of MRIs that are being done. You cannot see it on that. You need to use a lower intensity. So that's the difference. Oh, yeah, because I, I also know that, you know, now that's, that's like supposedly the excitement. Oh, we have a, you know, 8 billion Tesla you know, MRI at our hospital and yeah. we have a 10 billion one or whatever the units are. I know that there's like a point of pride. I guess the thought is like the higher the, uh, you know, the magnetism yeah. of the MRI, the better for some reason, but not necessarily. So, nope. okay. So what um, have you or who, has anyone made a catalog of, are there certain foods that are just high in it or is it the way the food's grown or the water, where the water comes from? Or like what, what are the factors in a diet that determine if you're going to have high or low levels of this? Yeah, both really. So it's absolutely, it's the types of food. So uh, let me just sort of give you an overview. The fats are the absolute lowest. The next set is, and, and I have to preface all of this. The, this is very much about how foods, fats, animals are grown. If they were allowed animals, for that matter, to consume their natural diet that they were supposed to have is key. And vegetables, of course, not genetically modified to grow faster and grow quicker and higher and taller. And so that's also definitely a higher deuterium rich food. Um, so, but we want to focus on fats. And then it's um, the animal proteins, the fatty cuts in particular that are low. Then all the green vegetables, photosynthesis is a process of fractionation and it, it depletes deuterium. So all of those. And then the next step is that starts to become heavier in deuterium is fruits and then grains and then all processed foods and, and definitely all genetically modified foods. And so there isn't yet quite a database yet. We're working on that as part of the Deuteronomic Science Institute. What I can tell you is that my daughter and I are actually working on uh, a cookbook and we have so far measured, I think, 150 
foods. We are trying to make this seasonal as well and local. So we're, we've measured, so I'm Dutch. And so we've measured some foods in uh, Netherlands. Uh, we hung it in Hungary. And then we're also planning to do some in Italy where my daughter is spending time. And then we will make a cookbook that will be the first that lists deuterium content and composes meals that are low in deuterium, but yet the most delicious things you can make. Well, how do you test the food? How do you know how much it has in it? So you send it to a very fancy analyzing lab that can has the right machines to do that. It's not something we can do it at home. So it's it's a it's a oh. very much a process. So it's it's difficult to do. It's nothing that uh, you yeah. can have a small device that you have with you to test, right? No, which I do hope at some point we will get. That would be just phenomenal. But right now, no. This this takes a a very, very expensive and elaborate machine to do this very exactly for us. All right. But there's certain foods that you know are going to be much safer than others in general. Yeah. And then there's ones that uh, you don't know because you don't know how it's processed necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So if you think, for instance, um, about fats, if you look at a grass-fed butter, that would be 116 parts per million, but a industrialized butter would be 124, for instance. So there's quite a difference. And that's when I said, you know, it's so important to make sure that the quality of the, of the foods you consume is the best that you can find. So in terms of, uh, you know, cancer, I don't know, have there been studies to see is it, you know, does a, a 10, 10 part per million difference in the amount of deuterium make a big difference or do you have to get drastic? Uh, like what's been observed? So this data is really the best that has been assembled by Gabor Shamiae. And he, in 2019, presented on based on Hungarian population, the data of over 2000 patients that he had followed and that we're not specifically looking at just reducing it 10, 10 ppm. He placed people on deuterium depletion protocols where you lower it to what I had mentioned earlier, therapeutic level. Again, depending on the, um, the person, their weight, their, their condition, their type of cancer, the aggressiveness and so forth, and leave them there for a period of time. And then you reduce that again to a lower level and so forth. You change the environment. That's key. And so normally the, the, the population in Hungary, if they get diagnosed with cancer to the, the medium survival time is 2.8 years. If you implement Deuterium depletion amongst all your normal interventions that you may do, your standard of care, you uh, can increase that to four to five times as long. So four to five fold. And I'm talking 11.8 to maybe 14, 15 years um, by implementing just that alone. So it's a very, very significant intervention. I, I know of nothing else that comes even close. So when you eat, let's say you have cancer and you're eating or drinking, do your tumors like sequester any deuterium in the foods you're eating so they can grow faster? Yes. Yep. That's uh -huh. exactly what Yeah. So has anyone thought about how you can make maybe a poison pill or a po you know, what I mean is let's say you're able to modify water somehow and you know that, uh, you know, whatever substance you put in there will bind to the water and you know that the cancer cells will take it up, but therefore it's bad for them and it, it kills them. Because you know that they, they suck it up. They love the deuterium. Um, that's a great question. So 
the medical establishment knows very well what deuterium does, yes. And I think those in research that do and those in pharmacology, that's what I should say. I think most clinicians have never heard of it. In fact, it's really never discussed in most of the biochemistry books or physics books. Certainly, that's why it was never on my radar. That's why it's not on most people's radars. But I know that there's not just a pill that you can take, but I do know that uh, certain medications contain it. And so that changes everything because I don't know if you heard of this recent paper that was published on June 11th that stated that in fact, we have a polymerase. And so the challenge is basically the dogma of biology, which is DNA is transcribed to RNA and then RNA is translated into a protein, right? We all have learned that. It turns out that um, we have 14 different polymerases and one of those is called polymerase theta and it's described as a very promiscuous polymerase. It's a little sloppy, it's not always that perfect, but it's now been found that this particular polymerase is capable of reverse transcribing RNA in our bodies. And that means that what we always thought that that was only possible if a reverse transcriptase from HIV, for instance, and a viral one would be present. That's the only way we thought this could happen. But in fact, that's not true. And so if there's anything that if deuterium is present and part of this RNA, it stabilizes the RNA and allows them to persist and transcribe into DNA. And so this is a massive finding, huge discovery, changes how medicine from here on should implement uh, many of the interventions because of that. And normally RNA would degrade in the human body within seconds because it's just not meant to persist at all. But deuterium makes it hang around. I was going to ask you, yeah, how does the, uh, you know, the normal medical community think about deuterium and probably doesn't think about it at all? And I mean, do, are they accepting if you've talked to them about this or do they say you're crazy? Like what happens? It's just such a new topic. And for a lot of um, practitioners, it's just difficult uh, to wrap their heads around it. But once they start listening and understanding what this actually means, they know very well that this is part of the basic foundations they need to address. But it's getting through to them. It's a big piece of it. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's too bad because if um, if the medical industry accepted this, I could see them saying, like, you know, if you're going to have radiation bulk up on deuterium right before or deplete it, and that would help kill the tumors faster, yeah. et cetera. There's probably all kinds of tricks that they could do if they accepted this. Yes, but then the medical establishment isn't really trying to save people. Yeah. So, I mean, well, have you thought of any protocols? So if someone's going to have to go through standard of care, they're going to get chemo, they're going to get radiation. I've spoken to cancer practitioners that, you know, those, some have said, all right, if you fast, you know, 24 hours, let's say before a chemo treatment or 48 hours, you tend to fare better. Or if you can have radiation, same thing. Or if you go ketogenic diet, that helps you. I mean, so knowing what you know about, you know, water high in deuterium or low in it, are there any protocols that you have for, you know, patients you work with on what to do? 
Oh, of course. Yeah. And of course, those are individualized and they are often alongside exactly the protocols that you're just discussing, chemo, radiation and so forth. Um, we know that, you know, like I just said, the ketogenic or absolutely a low carbohydrate diet is a tremendous benefit for these patients. And so is drinking deuterium depleted water, clearly. Then there are certain therapies that are beneficial as well. Um, and this is just very dependent upon the patient that you deal with. So that would be, for instance, maybe someone that fever is a depleting mechanism. And so if you invoke the immune system with something, for instance, like mistletoe or hyperthermia, those are ways of also helping you deplete further. So these are all mechanisms depending on the person, their ability, their, where they are, how, what is um, doable for them. That's what we do. Where do you get the deuterium depleted water? Like, are there any commercial outfits that are making it or how do you get it? So there are currently really two easily available brands in the U.S. that you can order it from. One is a company called Clarivia. It's actually a water that's made in Romania. And their other company, that's Light Water. And they import water from Russia. And both of these companies sell them at fairly low concentrates. Light Water is 5 and 10 ppm. And Clarivia is 18 and 25. And so once you get those, you want to dilute them to a level that you choose to implement for a period of time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, has anyone tried to get super low down on deuterium depleted water? And what happens if you go super low? Is it bad for you to drink? Yeah, so super low is not great. And really, there's, are, uh, there's a paper that I have listed, I think, on my website that indicates that if you drink water lower than 50 ppm straight up, you can cause something like isotopic shock. And so you, you don't want to do that. You don't feel great. Initially, you may, may feel great, but then you can get symptoms as shakiness, changes in heart rate, changes in sense of consciousness. Just it alters your being. And so that's not advice. You don't want to go that low. But since yeah. it's that powerful, you would think that would really um, help support the fact that the amount of deuterium in water and in foods is important, but yep. I guess not. You would. Yeah, you would. <laughs> at some point, it will be standard of care and, and medicine at some, after we change out the, the current system that we have, because this is not sustainable. So, so what have you noticed in clients that uh, you get onto a low or a lower deuterium diet and, you know, including the water and the foods, like what, what tends to happen to them, you know, and how long do they have to be on it to see effects? So this varies greatly in the types of presentations. I can, let me give you an example of a couple of different ones. So there's one, a male patient in his 60s who presents with a sudden decline in his cognitive function. He's very worried about it. He's had some treatments for, let's say, a certain type of cancer and thinks it's the reaction of the medications and wants to improve his health. And so you place him on a fairly strict depletion plan for him. And within two weeks, he wrote me an email thanking me profoundly as it had changed his brain is how he described it literally those are the words he used so that that was wonderful then i can describe to you a case for instance with a 20 year old female who had been suffering from secondary amenorrhea for 18 months meaning she was not getting any uh, menstrual cycle whatsoever and there really was no underlying medical reason we ruled out all the normal 
you know, different steps you're supposed to go through to, you know, to come up with an answer. And at the end, you know, the doctors were like, well, that's just, you know, hypothalamic amenorrhea and um, idiopathic is the word they put in front of it. And so to me, that was just like, okay, that's, we are the idiots. We can't figure it out what's happening. Something is wrong here and, and we have to change it. And this 20 year old had a level of estrogen of less than five, which is a postmenopausal female. So we decided, okay, let's measure all the base level. And then we started on the protocol, including the water. And a month later, she had her period and we measured the estrogen and that was 40. And then we did the exact same set of labs a month later and it was 120. And again, she has cycled ever since. So it's, and it's two years later. Um, and we've done just periods of depletion and not just keeping her on it, but just making sure that, you know, regular life tends to increase these levels for you and you just can go, let's, you know, pick your two, three months a year. You want to be really mindful about it and, and deplete. And so um, that has worked and it's been great. So, so those are sort of different types of presentations. I've been able to restore thyroid function with a depletion protocol. There's just many great examples, improving glucose metabolism because diabetes and metabolic syndrome is very much a function of mitochondrial dysfunction. And so improving the terrain by addressing deuterium levels is very, very helpful for these individuals. Look at the body burden, you know, like through urine or a stool sample or something. Can you tell? Yeah, there is currently the easiest available is a saliva test. And I can give you that link as well. And that gives you a sense of your your levels at that time. Yeah, because that'll be an easy way for listeners. If they're concerned, they could find out and then, you know, suggestions on how to lower it themselves or, or to get yeah. help. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell how much of a lowering is necessary to improve your health? Is it very little or is it a lot? Or? So that again, totally depends upon your, how high your levels were. And then it differs greatly. I mean, I've tested quite a lot of individuals at this point and it's, it, you really can see the higher levels definitely correlate with the level of disease that's present. And so for some, you have to drop down 15, 20 PPM to, to, to get it down to the one, the lower 130s or really ideally below 130. That, that's where a successful protocol would, would get you 125 around there. So you said it's possible to do it in a couple of weeks, right? You drop it actually really quickly if you're strict with all the, the interventions. You know, you, you want to drink, if you do the deuterium nuclear water, you want to be consistent with replacing every liquid that you drink, you know, whether it's coffee or tea, you make it from that and you drink that throughout the day and, and just maintain a, a steady level and really do not consume the foods. That, food is really the biggest piece. So if you can focus on foods that are the lowest, you would do very, very well with that. You know, the body has the mechanisms to kind of strip off the deuterium from proteins and, and carbohydrates, but not of fats. And so if you consume any form of a trans fat or a fat that's coming from animals that just did not live the right lives, you will have um, deuterium in it. And that's you cannot help, but it ends up in mitochondria. And, and so that's just a real problem. Yeah, this is, this is super cool. What's, uh, do you know of research going on? I mean, is there a field that's growing? Researchers that are working on this? 
Yeah, I do. There is research going on in Hungary at a variety of places. And in fact, we just have been putting the fin finishing touches on a graduate course that will um, do tonomics that will be given in um, January at the Freie Universiteit in Amsterdam. There are several researchers there that are very interested in integrating deutonomics in their large population scale studies that they are doing for prevention of cognitive decline and, and all sorts of things. So we will see where we can get some of these initiatives. There's a lot of planning going on at this time. So it will be very interesting to move that all forward. Yeah. So for listeners, um, do you do consults with people one-on-one -on -one or yeah. do you know who does or like, you know, okay. So yeah, for yeah, people I that do. take this further that are interested, so how do they get I, in I touch with you? Yeah, so I would just say thank you for, for that opportunity. Um, just check out my website. It's Dr. Petra D. So just DR for doctor and then my first name, P-E-T-R-A, and then the letter D again for doctor.com. And I have uh, put a lot of information of deuteronomics on there. So review all that. And if you're interested, please send me an email and I can try and schedule all my consulting is currently going on via online platforms or telephone. So, Can you help people uh, worldwide or just in the U.S.? Or where are you limited to where you're not? So I am licensed in the state of California as an MD, and then I'm also recognized here in Hungary and therefore in the EU as well. Oh, cool. And then last question, what kind of conditions have you observed that are useful, you know, for um, to understand deuteronomics? So you spoke about cancer. Um, I would guess maybe cognitive decline, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, any other conditions that people might be surprised to hear about that this may help. You know, I honestly believe, Richard, that any form of a chronic disease would benefit from depletion. And once you implement that and do that for two to three months, then retest some of the levels, see where you are at, whether that's a Lyme disease patient or you know, any autoimmune disorder, all of these types of presentations would help. And then it's just all about modulating the immune system function, calming it down and, and building forward from there. So I think there's many, it's basically for everyone. It's for, for athletes that want to improve their their ability to perform on the field or, or students who want to be able to use their brain even faster and more effectively those would all benefit from depletion. Okay, excellent. Well, Petra, thanks for coming on. This has been a really great call. Very interesting. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.